The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Okay, um, you're all very welcome to this week's Trinity Early Modern History Seminar. Um, I'm Patrick Walsh and I'll be chairing this session again as per usual. Um, I want to just remind everybody before we get started with today's proceedings, um, the podcasts of the previous seminars, so of our, pre- our previous, two se- previous two sessions this term are now available on the Long Room Hope website and we hope to have a link which we'll be able to circulate in the chat box during the talk. If not, we'll be able to we'll get that to you afterwards. Um, so that's the previous seminars podcast still available. Moving on then to today. Today, um, we're very privileged to have two members of Trinity's um, really flagship digital humanities project, the Beyond 2022 project, which is trying to recreate the lost archives that were tragically lost in 1922. Um, and recreation a digital format with this remarkable project, some of the contents of that archive and some of those lost treasures. And today we've two members of that team, um, team is led by Professor Peter Crooks here at Trinity, but two members of the team, Dr. Tim Murta and Dr. Neil Johnson are going to introduce us to, um, I suppose the early modern dimensions of the project. And they're as much looking for feedback on some of the early modern dimensions, expertise, lost sources, leads to pursue, ideas to pursue. And so if you have any of those, feel free to drop them into the question and answer box. Also, as the talks are proceeding, if you want to queue up questions in the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen, we'll then come to the questions after both speakers have spoken. So I just want to introduce our two speakers and then hand formally over to them. So first up, we're going to have Dr. Tim Murta, who is, I suppose, beyond 22's man in Belfast. Um, he's currently working in partnership with the project in the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland, which, as many of you will know, has a particularly strong archive of sort of, if not replacement material, but certainly 19 um, Public Record Office adjacent material in their collections. And Tim is working through that material. Um, at the moment as much as he can under the current restrictions. And Tim, as many of you will know, is an expert on the 1790s, wrote a really superb thesis here a few years ago on the 1790s in Dublin um, and Irish radicalism in the age of the United Irishmen, um, which we hope to see in publication and not too long away. Um, And then our second speaker is Dr. Neil Johnston. And Neil will again be familiar to many people in the audience and again, I should just tell our speakers, we have a very large audience today, despite a competing um, seminar at the exact same time in Oxford on decolonizing Irish history. So no worries there. We have 43 people in our audience at the moment, and that keeps rising. And Neil is um, a historian of 17th century Ireland, particularly the Restoration period. Um, at least that's his sort of training. But Neil is now deputy head of early modern records at the National Archives in the UK. Um, and works very much in partnership with Beyond 2022 from Q. 
Neil's responsibility over there for the early modern archive, and um, which of course is a huge archive pertinent to Ireland. Neil will also be familiar to many of you as an historian of Restoration Ireland and as one of the co-founders of the Tudor Stewart Conference, um, that vital forum for debate and discussion of 16th and 17th century Ireland over the last nigh on 10 years. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Tim first, and then he's going to pass at an organically chosen moment, or so he tells me, to Neil. Um, so we shall see how that goes. Um, so over to you, Tim. Thank you very much, Patrick, and it's a pleasure to be here today. Now, before I, I, I start talking, uh, I'm sort of, I'm not sure if I'm contractually obliged, but I feel like I am to show you a very short, and I promise it will be short, uh, film produced by the project, which uh, we're very proud of. And for those of you who are not familiar with some of the details about the Beyond 20 project, I find this is quite a useful sort of starting point to sort of ground the discussion about what we are actually trying to do. So technology permitting, I'm gonna to try to share my screen right now to show you a very short film. Uh, oh, excuse me. Stop sharing. It's share screen, share the screen. Yeah, this should be it. Dublin, June 30th, 1922. Day three of the Battle of the Four Courts, the opening engagement of the Irish Civil War. Shortly after noon, the city is shaken by a huge explosion. After the blast, fire takes hold and plumes of white smoke are seen billowing from an arcade of tall windows in a corner of the Four Courts complex. This is the record treasury of Ireland's public record office. Irish history, dating back over 700 years, is on fire. Inside the record treasury, the intense heat melts the high ironwork galleries and shelving, casting paper and parchment records into the flames below. Miraculously, one part of the building survives almost intact, except for a blast hole in the side wall. The record house, and at its heart, the handsome search room where researchers pored over historical documents had escaped the worst of the damage. Now, supported by the Government of Ireland, the Beyond 2022 project is reconstructing the search room in virtual reality. Here, readers in 1922 conducted their research beneath the natural light of a beautiful glazed ceiling. And for the first time in a century, we can reopen the double doors that led to the record treasury, passing through the firebreak, which stopped the blaze spreading to the front of the building. On the centenary of the fire, Four steps will take you on your journey through Ireland's virtual record treasure. Explore, locate, connect, discover. Entering through the record house, you can admire its elegant staircase before passing into the search room where your discoveries begin. From here, you can search the archive and travel to the very place in the lofty galleries of the treasury where the records destroyed in 1922 have been reassembled from surviving copies and transcripts located in archives across Ireland and around the world. Now, next generation technology enables you to visualize the whole archive and make connections in ways that were unimaginable a century ago. Returning to the search room, you can discover more about the people, places and topics contained in the documents. Beyond 2022, 
unlocking the story of Ireland and its peoples across seven centuries and reopening a lost archive to new generations with new questions. So all uh, very slick that. Um, now I'm hopefully going to explain a little bit more about how we are hoping to achieve this goal that we've set ourselves in that video of producing a virtual record treasury for 2022 and doing something to try and compensate for this terrible loss of records. Now I will try once again to share my screen for some slides. There we go. Yep, slideshow from the beginning. Okay. Now, uh, as that video was referring to, the Public Records Office of Ireland had been established in 1867 under the Public Records of Ireland Act. And in many ways, it was a very new thing. The idea of a central repository for all the official documentation produced by the various organs of state, uh, well, the British state in Ireland, was not, I mean, we take it now for granted of a central repository or archive. Um, it was new. It's certainly very interesting when you look through the internal administrative records of this institution, of the PROI, uh, A, how much it was modeled on the Public Record Office of England, uh, the one based in London, what is today now the National Archives in Kew. Um, it too, a 19th century invention, how directly uh, based on it, the Dublin office was, that's one thing that stands out. But the second most striking aspect about this institution uh, what we're discovering from its internal administrative records, which are part of this project, is the sometimes quite argumentative wranglings it had to go through with other uh, uh, parts of the sort of state bureaucracy. The Public Record Office of Ireland was entitled by it, the legislation that set it up to essentially subpoena documents, not quite subpoena, that's not the right word, but essentially to take custody of documents that were in the other various state repositories sprinkled throughout the city. Um, now, that said, very importantly, not all documents were sent here. Some very important collections remained independent from this new archive. The Irish State Paper Office, based in Dublin Castle, was actually to retain independence, which it would continue until 1989. Um, and that has actually been very important for our work, and I'll get to that, get to why in a little bit. Now, of course, the tragic event depicted in this image and referenced in that short film the destruction of the Public Record Office in June 30th, 1922. Uh, one of the great tragedies of that era and of Irish history as a whole. When the explosion rocketed through the Western part of that complex on the 30th of June, uh, it took with it innumerable uh, uh, deposits of historical records. We have uh, an account from one of the anti-treatyites who was there, Ernie O'Malley, who recounted sitting on the steps, having been caught, having kept being captured, he recounted watching sort of the detritus, all the, the ash and fragments of paper fluttering down through the sky from the destroyed archive. O'Malley said that he assumed that the only thing that had been contained in the archive had been records of payments to British informers in Ireland. Now, ironically, that was the one thing that wasn't in there, that wasn't ever transferred, there our informers reports, they were all safely in Dublin Castle. However, uh, sort of O'Malley's comments uh, uh, do tell us something perhaps about popular perceptions. What was being destroyed was not actually 
simply in former's accounts, but seven plus centuries of his own country's history. Another man, in fact, the head archivist of the PROI, Herbert Woods, also had a remark about the tragic events of that day. As he noted, the great tragedy or the irony was that it was the method of assembling the public records under one roof was the very means which made such a terrible destruction possible. Uh, this is an image which uh, I, I tend to like to show when I'm asked to speak in public about the project. And I don't know if it's always seen, it's actually reportage of people picking up some of the documents that were strewn in the street after uh, the terrible fire. Now, as tragic and heartbreaking as an image like this may be, there is actually another document that's uh, even more sort of heart-wrenching for the historian, which is Woods's Guide to the Public Records Office of Ireland. This is a 1919 document uh, produced by the same man who, who I just quoted, Herbert Woods. It's sometimes being described as the saddest book in Irish history. It describes in sometimes quite substantial detail the different collections and series of what was lost. Uh, I've said here in the slide that it is a core document of Beyond 2022, and I, that is hard to sort of overstate. It's, I find myself reading it uh, on an almost daily basis now. Um, now, there are other sources we have for what was contained in that building. Uh, there were a series of deputy keepers reports, much like the way that the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland to this day produces deputy keeper reports between 1869 and 1921. We also have, uh, and these are not yet available to the public, a series of uh, registers of new accessions and deposits between those years, which give us even more granular level detail about what was actually brought into the building before 1922. Uh, crucially, uh, these deputy keepers reports and Woods's guide are now available on the Beyond 22 website uh, in searchable PDF format, which makes them very, very easy to use. And you know, I assume because I've been working on these so much recently that sort of everyone has had a look at Woods's guide. Uh, but that may not necessarily be it. And if there are any uh, graduate or postgraduates uh, students listening today who haven't had a look at it, I sort of implore you, uh, if you think you have the constitution, to go look through it. Uh, it's, it's only about 300 pages, which sounds like a lot, but you can actually skim through it because a lot of it's just, just sort of very brief descriptions. Um, it really does just hit home how substantial this uh, sort of cultural destruction was in uh, 1922. Now, if I was to try and describe to you uh, the full extent of what was in the forecourts, in, in the Public Record Office of Ireland, and what is listed in this guide, this Woods's Guide of 1919, if I tried to really give you a, a comprehensive survey, I'd be here all day. Uh, I'll try to give you the Cliff Notes version. Um, the guide lists the various fonts, the sort of the top highest level of description, with series and sub-series listings. I mean, get into what that means. But essentially what was contained and what the guide makes clear was in there was essentially the major organs of the state as they had developed since the late medieval period. It contained the records of the major branches of the judiciary, the so-called four courts that gave the complex its name, the King's or occasionally Queen's Bench, the Court of Common Pleas, the Court of Exchequer and the Court of Chancery. Now, right there, just those four courts I've put into one line of description. That is an immense amount of material stretching all the way back to the 12th century. If we were to only put our mind to trying to come back to, to, to compensate for the loss of the records of even one of those four courts, that in itself would be a very substantial project. But in addition to all four of those very significant branches of the judiciary, the records of the Privy Council, 
again, stretching all the way back to the very earliest per uh, periods, so to at least the uh, 15th century, a bit further back actually, uh, were contained in there. The journals and records of the Irish Parliament, the 17th and 18th century. The records of the Chief Secretary's Office, although not all of them were all in there as well. It also contained a substantial ecclesiastical material uh, from the pre-Reformation and then Church of Ireland. Uh, 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 testamentary collections, of course, very closely connected to the ecclesiastical ones in terms of uh, prerogative courts. Um, essentially, uh, if you are looking for pre-1858 wills, uh, sort of not, you're not necessarily out of luck, but you're gonna find it a lot harder because of the destruction of 1922. In addition to all these, there were extinct, I've said here, extinct commissions, so, uh, parliamentary inquiries and the evidence given to them, uh, things like inquiry into the state of the poor classes in Ireland from the 1830s, the uh, Irish Record Commission from the early 1810s, the Education Inquiry from 1824, uh, Irish Relief, Relief Commissions of 1846, uh, the Irish Church Commission of 1867, to give you some examples of these commissions and their internal records which were lost. In addition, extinct jurisdictions, uh, the Court of uh, Castle Chamber or Star Chamber, the Liberty of um, St. Sepulchre in, in Dublin, the Court of Ward and Liveries, to give you some examples of material that was in there. Uh, of course, if you read through Woods's guide, there's a couple of pages at the end of it which are just miscellaneous documents contained within there. And, you know, miscellaneous, you always wonder what's sort of contained under that heading. It can sometimes be a fair, fairly uh, sort of sneaky, sneaky one. Uh, in this case, miscellaneous included uh, records of Huguenots in Ireland. It contained guild records, uh, local corporation records in some cases, particularly for Dublin, uh, Christchurch's deeds, some of them, um, census returns. Again, I've sort of downplayed that because we always end up getting asked about the census so much, but those were definitely contained within there as well. Uh, cholera reports, again, from the 19th century about local public health. Again, just a plethora of material. Now, why Woods's Guide is such a core uh, uh, document for our project is not simply the listings, although they're obviously crucial. It's something else. Wood included these sort of potted institutional biographies of the different organs of state that had produced all this material, what we refer to in archival work as fonds, the highest level of description. What is creating these documents? Um, I've put some, put some examples here, and you know the emphasis really is when I say it's a potted biography, I really mean it's a very short one. Uh, an example here on the left side of your screen of a description of what the Court of Chancery was that runs only to two or three paragraphs. I mean, there's a volume, there's several volumes describing the inner workings of the Court of Chancery. Uh, I've put here on the right, the chief secretary's office, you know, gets a page and a half, uh, if, if that, again, you know, sort of the chief secretary's office is the executive government and its, you know, secretariat for, you know, two plus centuries, three plus centuries of Irish history. Um, but we take these institutional biographies very, very seriously because they're crucial to thinking about the archives, not simply as matter or sort of grist to the mill, but thinking sort of of them in ontological terms. How are we structuring the knowledge and thinking about the sources that produce this material and how they interact with one another? Um, so it's one of our goals within the project is to produce enhanced institutional biographies for some of these uh, uh, institutions. Now, I've said here that Herbert Wood, uh, that's an image if you sort of put a face to the name, 
head archivist at the time of the destruction of the archive and the man who produced this guide. There's another heartbreaking image here on your screen of Wood sitting or standing rather in the rubble of the archive he had done so much to help create, sifting through the detritus. Yet as sort of demoralizing as that experience must have been, uh, Woods took it in his stride. While he did retire, that is true, uh, that his retirement did not mean inactivity. In the 1920s and 1930s, Wood continued to be extremely busy in the realm of Irish archives, historical research, and public life as, as a whole. One of the first things he did, I mean, I think this image sort of sums it up, was to take stock of what had been lost, but also what could be replaced. Um, he was sort of an inveterate optimist in many senses. Um, throughout the 1920s, he gave various talks about what could and could not be done to replace the destroyed archive. Uh, one of these talks became the basis of a paper published in 1930, called simply The Public Records of Ireland Before and After 1922. Um, the, he provides in this document and elsewhere lists of sources for surviving wills, parish registers, substitutes for destroyed census returns, inquisitions, transcripts, duplicate records. Um, he lists out, very importantly, some of the records that hadn't been destroyed by fire in the four courts in 22, that had been preserved in that guardhouse at the front that had been saved by the blast doors. Uh, these included some substantial documents, uh, inquisitions from the 15th and 16th century, memoranda rolls dating as back far as the 13th century, plea rolls again from the 13th and 14th centuries, uh, various degrees, charters, and king's letters. Uh, Wood, in this talk, also made very special mention of some other sources which are, by this stage, should be well known to early modern historians of Ireland, such as the Lodge manuscripts, uh, John Lodge, from the 18th century, who made substantial extracts from the patent and close rolls, um, as well as things like pardons, wardships, so on. Um, Wood also listed out more recent substantial ca calendars that have been made by colleagues both in Dublin and London based on the records before 1922. He also noted the substantial amounts of material that could be found in earlier Irish record commissions, those in the beginning of the 19th century, which were still very, very useful in terms of, uh, of the calendar material. And we can talk about that more later on. Um, moreover, Wood made a really interesting point, which was that not everything had been destroyed simply because not everything had been in the forecourts very substantial repositories existed outside of it. To give some examples, I've made reference multiple times to the Irish State Paper Office, to Dublin Castle, and of course, to the Chief Secretary's Office papers, many of which were still contained there. And for anyone who works regularly on the 19th century in our uh, Irish history, the Chief Secretary's Re Office Registered Papers, or CSORP, are a well-known, very voluminous uh, collection, which escaped destruction. Woods also pointed out that there were several uh, uh, other vital repositories actually quite nearby in geographic terms. If you walk up from the four courts and find yourself in Henrietta Street, the very top of that street is the Registry of Deeds in the King's Inn. Again, left unscathed. Um, Wood also pointed out to the quote unquote, greatest collection of them all, the English Public Record Office in London, um, what is now TNA, a vital place for using documents and correspondence that have gone from Dublin to London to either replace or compensate for internal administrative records 
of Ireland that had been lost in 22. One of the crucial things we're hoping to do in this uh, project is catalog enhancement at linking. Now, I've put on your screen sort of screenshots from four substantial uh, catalogs that I would regularly use. Uh, three of them are actually core Beyond 2020 partners, TNA and their discovery platform, uh, NAI Online, and Prony's eCatalog at the very bottom of the screen. I've also included NLI sources because it is still very useful and it does actually link out sometimes, a lot of the time, to those other three sources. What we're hoping to do is to enhance these catalogs. These catalogs are often very impressive, but we feel that by doing a systematic survey of surviving material, we can do even more to enhance that, but also to link them, to make uh, sort of, uh, to make very apparent, to make very clear the links between different series. Uh, that's something that most historians who work on this period, on the early modern period in Ireland, do organically. You begin to find these links between different collections. We feel there's actually a real utility there in actually drawing out some of those links through enhanced cataloging. In that sense, we are in many ways uh, carrying on a, a, a mission which really started as early as 1922 itself. Uh, Woods and his description uh, of how he hoped to compensate for the loss of these records in many ways was the analog precursor to what we are trying to do in a new digital era. Which brings me to uh, my role in the project in the Public Record Office of Northern Ireland, PRONI. Uh, PRONI is a core Beyond 2020 partner. I am, uh, as Patrick said, our, their man in Belfast for the project. I'm stationed there, uh, as it were. Um, I'm focusing on the holdings of PRONI. And I mean, it's important to remember that PRONI is one of the two direct successor institutions to the destroyed Public Record Office of Ireland. There's, of course, the National Archives of Ireland, a successor institution in many ways, the primary successor, but PRONI is too, as one of two state archives, central state archives based on this island. Now, the story of PRONI uh, is inevitably tied up with the story of one man, this man, David Alfred Chart. Chart had worked in both the Irish State Paper Office and then in the Public Record Office of Ireland under Wood uh, in the 1910s and early 1920s. Now, he transferred uh, during the Civil War from Belfast, from Dublin to Belfast, where he was working with the new Northern Irish States uh, Finance Department before becoming the first deputy keeper of Prony, uh, in which capacity he would serve for 20, 25 years. Uh, and he, he left an indelible mark on sort of the evolution of Prony as, as an archive. From the start, Chart pushed that Prony should do more than simply take custody of new documents. That's a vital thing to remember. When Prony was first set up, there was a very strong argument being made by the Northern Irish uh, Department of Finance that really all it should be doing is preserving the new material that was being produced post-1920-22 by the new uh, government departments in Northern Ireland. Um, Chart, though, pushed that it should do more, that it should have remit as well to go out and seek replacement documents and other material of a historical nature that's important to Northern Ireland's individual history. Uh, as Chart put it, and I'll quote him here directly, Ulster was an ancient province which had consistently been at the forefront of events. Its legends are richer, more detailed, and uh, generally speaking, earlier in date than those of the rest of Ireland." End quote. Uh, so from the very beginning, the creation of an archive in Northern Ireland is bound up 
with notions of national identity and sort of nation state building. Um, and as a result, when the legislation that established PRONI was passed, it gave it that wide remit to collect historical material, seeking out replacements. So PRONI and what my work in PRONI is, is in many ways a very odd thing. I'm working in a state archive on pre-1922 material, but all of its pre-1922 holdings are derived from non-state sources, almost exclusively. Um, and what are those sources? What are those replacements that Chart was so keen to find? Well, right from the beginning, Chart outlined some of his strategies in his regular deputy keepers reports for how he would compensate for the loss of records in the forecourts. He would take custody of local government records, which were initially weren't sort of the purview of a public records office, as well as certain categories of church records and educational records. Uh, to give you an example from this, as early as 1926, Chart actually argued that Prony should accept deposits from the new Ministry of Education, who held registers from 19th century elementary schools, public elementary schools. Now, these were not at the time considered to be what were called uh, public records. Uh, but Chart argued that actually school registers, they should be considered public records because so much of the census had been destroyed um, with no public system of re registering births before 1864 uh, and the destruction of all those census returns in the forecourts. Uh, church, uh, church baptismal records and their registrations weren't always uh, 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 consistent, that you had to use new sources like elementary school registers creatively to sort of compensate. Now that's one example, but he also had much larger strategies, um, appealing to the public, newspaper appeals to individuals to contribute material of a historical nature. Um, now, the general appeals to the public uh, yielded limited results, but far more successful was his appeal to several large solicitors firms. And in terms of compensating for pre-1858 wills uh, and certain legal documents relating to the transfer of land, uh, some of Prony's real great holdings derived from solicitor deposits. He was also keen, and this is something that you do sort of quite not quite nice to come across when you're looking through Prony, is certified copies. These are official copies of material done by the Public Record Office of Ireland before that 1922 fire, which are still in existence. These tend to be things like wills, for very obvious reasons. You need a certified copy for some legal proceedings. Um, but there's an example of, of one of those on the left side of your screen, an uh, 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 early 18th century will, uh, preserved in the, the papers of a Belfast historian called George Ben. But also on your right, you have transcripts of a patent roll from the Irish Chancery um, from 1604. Excuse me, my screen's flipping there. Um, again, Chart was keen to find type of collections that would have things like this. So he sought out material from, for instance, family historians. I have on your screen uh, uh, some examples from a collection called the McCants Transcripts, um, if you're ever interested in them. Uh, those interested in 18th century military history might find these, it's a small enough collection, but it is really, really interesting. Uh, they relate mainly to the ancestors of a man called Captain McCants, who donated them in the 1920s. Uh, they relate mainly to certain regiments, again, relating to his own family's ancestors, dating from roughly the 1710s up until the 1790s. Uh, transcripts of kings and queens letters, depicted on your left-hand side, as well as commander-in-chief books. Some um, transcripts of material relating to the payment of troops in the 1730s, 1740s. Um, those are a lovely little gem. And 
I think uh, 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 Chart was sort of very keen to go out and find stuff like this. And certainly it's, I can speak from my own experience, that it really is exciting when you see something like this. Um, you'll note at the very top on, on the document on your right-hand side, the very top, it has one of those things that always sort of sets alarms going for me is uh, you see this sequence of letters and numbers, 1E-5-91. That's reference to the location of these documents in the destroyed archive. Those images you saw at the very beginning of that large record treasury, the multi-story record treasury, um, that's floor one, bay E, shelf five, row 91. Uh, so that's always really exciting. You can actually find that, you know, you can place it physically in the archive. Another really great archive, uh, another great source for replacement materials that that, that chart was, was, was aware to were local historians. I'm giving you an example here uh, of Ma Maxwell Given, a great historian of Coleraine. Uh, now, again, these are all Coleraine-focused uh, 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 excerpts that he transcribed, but here's another one from the Public Record Office of Dublin, the Diocesan Collection, Bundle 50-75-7, which is an account of Popish clergy living in the various parishes of the Diocese of Derry. Uh, he's unsure, this local historian, uh, whether it's from 1696 or 1694, at least he's honest, uh, and it gives you some descriptions of the local uh, uh, Catholic priests living in that townland whether they officiate, whether they don't, and so on. Another lovely little gem. Uh, Prony is home to some several substantial collections by antiquarians and genealogists. Uh, I'll give you the example here of the voluminous papers of Tennyson Groves, a genealogist depicted on, on the right here. Uh, 17,000 items listed in the Prony catalogue derived from Groves' research, in which I'm still, uh, uh, for better or for worse, working my way through. Um, there were also the records produced by professional researchers and record agents. Uh, one example I, I can talk about briefly here on the right hand side of your screen is a document called the Delafield Manuscript, which is extracts from uh, numerous different, uh, mainly exchequer records dating back uh, uh, to, the, to, to, the, to the late medieval period, uh, relating to uh, the family ancestors of a man called John Delafield, uh, 20th century American general. Uh, we've actually digitized this. This is available on the on the Beyond 22 website. So if you feel like actually playing around and having a look at what one of these type of early 20th century transcriptions is like and what sort of records they were looking at, you can actually go play with this in, in your own time. Now, of course, the big prize in Prony, uh, for anyone who's ever used it, you'll be aware, is that it's important family collections. Now, uh, I'm, I know I'm sort of pressed for time here. I'm, I'm running out of time. Um, but if you ever use it, the real sort of jewels of the archive are in the collections of landed uh, and upper class families who were with Northern Irish links, who were convinced to donate the family uh, 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 collections to Prony. Uh, this in was inaugurated with the third Duke of Abercorn, and the Abercorn papers in Prony are a really important collection. Uh, Abercorn was the first governor of Northern Ireland, and Chart and his colleagues sort of lobbied him to both donate his own archive and to provide it as sort of an example to other members of this class to do likewise. A quick search through Prony's uh, catalogue will show some collections which undoubtedly some in the audience today will be very uh, 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 knowledgeable about. Uh, I've given only three examples here. We could go on for many, many more slides. The Ainsley Papers relating to the 17th century, the Foster Papers, uh, a vast archive, they meant to the 18th, and the Downshire Papers, again, stretching across the early modern period, uh, not only 
estate papers, family papers, private correspondence, but also essentially the official correspondence um, of a lot of roles that prominent members of these families held. And that really is sort of where the gems are. However, Chart also realized that these type of collections on their own only had limited utility. The crucial thing was to link these great uh, family and private deposits to the state material that was sitting over in queue. So as early as 1928, you can see here in the Deputy Keeper's Report, there was a, a targeted program of transcribing state papers held by the Public Record Office in London. For every year between 1928 and 1959, 31 years, uh, three or four weeks of the year, a staff member of Prony, sometimes Chart himself, would go over to London and work on either the Public Record Office in London, either what has become TNA or uh, the British Library, British Museum, uh, but mainly TNA. And this was one of their big projects, state papers relating to Ireland, substantial extracts were made relating to the years 1715 up until 1760. After that point in 1959, they actually stopped it because of the advent of microfilming. But it shows you something about the commitment they had to that. On the right hand side of your screen, you have another project which was carried out again in the 1920s, transcribing the Pelham Papers, uh, a prominent British aristocrat who held the position of chief secretary on two separate occasions, as well as being home secretary at the time of the union. Um, what these examples show is that Chart was aware the real utility would come from linking these para replacements and substitute materials that could be found locally with the great collections of state that were still maintained in London. And to discuss that, I'm going to hand over to uh, uh, Neil Johnson, who has much more experience with those type of records. So I will stop sharing my screen. Thank you, Tim. Okay. Now, um, I'm going to take over here and I want to talk for a little while about um, some of the collections that are not the state papers or the home office, the HO100 records that are at TNA. These are the, in many ways, they're the big prize. Um, they're what most of us uh, who write uh, the history of 16th, 17th, and 18th century Ireland will be familiar with. Uh, they're accessible on microfilm. A pretty large chunk of them have been calendared or recalendared, as the Irish Manuscripts Commission have been trying to do in the last uh, few decades, really since the 90s now. Um, and uh, they're accessible for those of us who have access to them through state papers online. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to shift the focus of the talk a little bit uh, to try and uh, introduce you to. Um, records that are probably less familiar to people, mainly through cataloging uh, issues that have uh, previously existed and uh, just because material has, is, was unknown. So our job um, with Beyond 2022, um, and my job with Beyond 2022, and I work with my, very closely with my colleague, uh, Dr. Sarah Hendricks, uh, who's currently, um, she's the uh, Archival Discovery Research Fellow um, with me at TNA. Uh, we are trying to comb across the archive um, and as Tim says it's, and as Patrick said it's they're huge collections um, and we are looking to extract um, snippets in many ways we're looking to recreate other sections uh, as much as we can so let me I'm going to talk you through um, 
I'm going to talk you through the Chancery Secretariat. I don't know if you can see my mouse moving here, but if we just think about the shape of government, and this is the 17th century, I put it up because that's what I'm most familiar with. But it will start with the governor, um, the Lord Lieutenant or the Lord Deputy or Lord's Justice, if they're put in place, and his officials. He will have a privy council with secretaries of state and the keeper of the privy seal and clerks of the council. And then we can think about exchequer, the, the uh, revenue side of government, exchequer and treasury. Um, we can look at the law officers. We can look at the judicial side. But I want to talk about the Chancery Secretariat um, because this is where uh, an archive or repository like TNA uh, can really uh, add weight um, to a project like Beyond 2022. The Chancery Secretariat was the, uh, the organ of government or the Department of Government that executed the royal will effectively. The King said he wanted something done or the Queen said she wanted something done and correspondence was issued for it to make it happen. But of course, behind all this, it didn't just happen, there's a bureaucratic process. These functions were replicated in, uh, uh, in Dublin and in London, so we can closely replicate it, not exactly, but closely. So we can begin to match records. Now, as Patrick said, the, uh, sorry, as Tim said, the, the, the Chancery records date from, I think it's 18 dead with the first, all the way up to uh, the 1870s. So it's a huge, huge, huge archive uh, that we can't begin to replace in total. What we can start to do is think about the process of how we how the records were created, which leads us into understanding where we can find the records, but also puts us in a place to make these serendipitous finds uh, in, in, a, in a repository like TNA or elsewhere, where we can um, come across materials um, and we are beginning to do so. So I want to just talk to you briefly. And this is something, this is a, a diagram we use when we're training um, students, uh, mainly PhD students at TNA. But if we think about the Secretariat side of Chancery, if you look at the left-hand side of the screen here, either the King or the Council will make a decision and something is to happen. Oftentimes the King or Queen will make an order and uh, a signed bill will be sent to the Signet Office saying, make this happen. So the King's officials as direct officials or the Council's direct officials will send an order either to the signet office or to the privy seal office saying, make this happen. A draft is, a draft is prepared in the signet office and it's sent back to the king or the queen for approval. It's then approved or amended in the signet office, sent on to be signed in the privy seal office, wherein it's sent to chancery. And within chancery, a draft document is uh, uh, produced it's embellished and it's uh, sent out to whoever is to receive it. Now, a letter patent will enclose grants of office, grants of land, um, pardons, uh, royal justice, um, grants of money, you name it. The whole gamut of, of government is, is enclosed in these documents. But the important part of it is they were, well, not all of them, but most of them, were enrolled. What that means is a clerical copy was taken, it was written on the parchment, and they were rolled up um, into long um, uh, documents. So what we have at TNA are almost all of the uh, 
the chancery, the material uh, produced by the chancery secretariat until the 1870s. And there is a huge amount of Irish material there. So as we start to match it with records that were uh, published in the 19th century in Ireland from the Irish chancery and material at TNA, we can start to rebuild the chancery secretariat in a, a quite a satisfying way. And that's what I want to talk to you about uh, for the next time we know, next little while. Um, I won't go on too long. So the beginning of this process is where a, a fiant is created. And that literally means fiant literae patentes, a letter is to be created. These, we have these fiants, and these are what you can see on the screen here are the, um, the deputy keepers reports, a uh, calendaring of them, uh, printing of them in the, in the 19th century. We have them for Henry VIII, Edward VI, Philip and Mary, and all of Elizabeth's reign. And then we start to come and stuck a little bit. Fiant is the, the warrant, the order to make something happen. So it is explaining why something is to happen. They're particularly important documents for uh, administrative historians. These are all available in the deputies keepers reports and they're well used by historians of political historians of Tudor Ireland, um, but not everybody may be aware of them. TNA's involvement then comes in um, when we start to look at uh, replacement materials for destroyed records that were in the four courts. Now, calendars of Patton and Closeroads for Ireland were published in the 19th century um, by James Moran, his monumental effort to publish documents. Moran was a clerk in the Rolls Office of Chancery in Dublin, and in the 1860s, he published three volumes. The first one, of, the first volume is for Henry VIII, Edward VI, Mary, and one to 18 Elizabeth, um, which takes us up to 1575. Volume two produced the second part of Elizabeth's reign um, until 1603. And curiously, volume three is uh, the first eight years of Charles I's reign, so it's 1625 to 32. And they are published on the shelves and they're digitized and they're in research libraries and fairly easy to track down uh, should you want to. What's not so easy to track down are records that had got to proof stage, but were never published. And that's where uh, the relationship between the, the, the 19th century relationship between the English and Irish governments comes into play because there was a dispute in the 1860s uh, between John Gilbert, um, the esteemed uh, antiquarian and historian of uh, pre-modern Ireland, um, very famous, will be known to most people, and Moran, who was producing these calendars. Um, Gilbert uh, issued forth uh, uh, an attack on uh, Moran's abilities, and uh, this was taken so seriously that the matter was brought to the attention of the Master of the Rolls um, in Chancery and then sent to Treasury in England. And, the, and it was sent to Treasury because uh, the English Parliament was paying for this at the time, or the Westminster Parliament was paying for this at the time. And the whole process ground to a halt. Now, the officials in London sat scratching their heads, not really understanding what was going on, as is often the case uh, with Irish matters, and documents were sent over to verify the process. And what you see here in the little image, uh, the small image there, uh, are draft copies of James I's, the green book there is James I's um, patent and close rolls, 
And this image, as you can see, it's very small just here. It says proof 9264, the 9th of February, 1864. This is for uh, patent and close roles for Charles I in a proof copy. Um, all of this material was bundled up and sent over to London. Um, and the process, it was never revived. They were never published, but we are hoping to digitize this material, make it available through the, uh, the Beyond 2022 uh, database and portal in the coming years. You know, it's, a, it's a huge, uh, it'd be, it's a really big piece of work, what we're trying to do, but it's eminently possible with, with skills and technology available to us at the moment. That's straightforward. Where do we go with TNA records that are not so straightforward? And how do we begin to move on from this, this uh, printed material? And I'm just going to talk you through the process here a little bit. In July 1660, Morris Eustace is sort of, with a wink and a nod, he's told he's, there is a, is an office of state up from after the King's restoration in, in May 1660. And he is to be created the Lord Chancellor of Ireland. Now, we don't have a, a warrant or an order issued from the Irish administration. And most things were happening at, uh, at Westminster and in Whitehall at this time. But we can actually reproduce how Eustace got his patent and his uh, commission of office. And on the main screen, the, what you see here are the indexes to the patent rolls that uh, we use all the time. And as we search through them, um, that the one in the, the rather clunky red box, um, says on the 6th of, oh, sorry, the 9th of October, um, 1660, Morris Eustace is to be issued a patent for the, the Chancellorship of Ireland. That's great. Um, that's the order going out. What you see here, this C82, these um, warrants, this is, this is the, the English version of a fiant that was produced in Ireland. These warrants explain exactly why Eustace is to be uh, granted the office of the Lord Chancellorship of Ireland. Um, oftentimes more information, more tangential or anecdotal information that appears in the, the final, uh, what we have now, the enrolled copy of the, the letters patent. Um, and it's signed by the Secretary of State on the 3rd of September. And it's, it's creating, sorry, not the Secretary of State, the, the Solicitor General and the Attorney General and the officials in uh, Chancery are processing the King's, the Royal Will. A patent would have been created and sent out, which is now gone. Um, it's been lost, but what we do have at TNA is this, and this is the enrolled copy for Eustace, Eustace's um, patent. And this describes his, uh, the conditions of office and how he's to fulfill his role. And uh, so again, a little bit of anecdotal information about how he suffered, suffered for the king, et cetera, et cetera, in the 1650s. It's not quite true, although he was in, in prison for a while and managed to father two children while in prison. So that's, that's quite a good trick. Um, but this is just one example of what we can do for Charles II's reign. And by my count at the moment, it's about 250 of these. Um, and we'll be able to carry this on into the James's reign. Uh, I know there's indexes for um, patents issued from the Irish Chancery in National Archives in Dublin. And we can begin to compare them to those that were issued from London and um, create some sort of uh, cohesive body uh, of, of evidence and knowledge for the functioning of this, this uh, this government organ. Now that's just one side of Chancery. I showed you to start that box of, of government. I won't flick back to it, uh, of government uh, bodies. 
But Chancery had another side, a judicial function, a, a conciliar court where people went um, seeking a, a decision that uh, wasn't covered by common law or statute law. They're seeking equity effectively and where a body of evidence is presented to the court and uh, the Lord Chancellor and his officials, the masters in court can come down and side one way or the other. And what you see in front of you is, um, I don't have a reference for it because uh, discovery is, is uh, the, the online catalogue has crashed this afternoon and I didn't get my reference in time. But what you see here in front of you is, this is a patent that was drafted and issued from the Irish Chancery um, and issued in Ireland, but Irish manners, Irish land, but it was sent to London uh, as a piece of evidence, uh, as part of a case. And it was sent to Westminster. And there it lay in this lovely little leather box uh, until we discovered it um, just before lockdown in March. That's why it's, it's, a, it's a rather poor picture of it. I just had snapped it at the time. And then a few days later, we had to leave the archive. And I've only been back the odd time. But what we see here, as, and we're slowly beginning to uncover, and we're, we know where to look now, which is the key thing, these uh, pieces of uh, chancery output from Ireland that have survived and ended up in a TNA uh, through the, the functioning of government. We can see this, like there's, there's an awful lot of Irish material I'm beginning to realise in, uh, as I said, the judicial side of chancery, but the equity side as well of the Court of Exchequer, where people are taking cases to the Westminster courts rather than the Dublin courts for matters of convenience because they're in London or they're English and they own land in Ireland or they have business dealings in Ireland and it's they expect probably to get a more favourable decision in London and maybe in Dublin depending on their, their provenance or uh, their outlook um, and I, I can I can talk about things like there's we know of in one series is we have 900 bags of records unsorted uh, largely uh, unknown what's in the, the contents of these bags um, but we do have a, a hint, an inkling that there's an awful lot of Irish records or so Irish and Irish related matters in these uh, effectively unopened sacks. So this is the kind of the kind of opportunity that beyond 2022 is affording um, researchers of, uh, of Irish history, Irish genealogists um, to uh, to uncover materials beyond the usual or what we're familiar with the usual or familiar with in the state papers and um, we can only do so much uh, and I do need to <laughs> try and um, uh, you know make that point very very clearly but I think uh, as uh, the, the project is still in the discovery phase and will hopefully run past 2022 um, and we'll be able to receive more funding um, but the, the question then becomes like, where do we go with all this? And if we can just step back from in a minute, which is which is one of my roles with the project. We're not just going in and, and making notes and taking pictures. We're trying to uh, harness the technology available to us in Beyond 2022, in Trinity College Dublin, through the ATAPT Centre. Um, there's the most impressive team of, uh, of uh, scientists and uh, computer technologists who are able to, um, we run the, anything we've digitized through transcribus that creates a relatively uh, good text um, and David Brown of, of uh, the history department and Kieran Wallace uh, of the history department there in, in TCD um, managed this process and it's fed then into the computer scientists who know how to extract uh, through natural language processing uh, extract entities and then they entity disambiguate which is really really important an entity being the name of a person or a place 
but then the matter becomes of how do you teach a machine the difference between the first Earl, say, and an example we use all the time is the Earl of Mount Rath. How do you teach a machine to distinguish between the first and the second Earls of Mount Rath? And then you go to authority lists and you go to, you need historians and you need interpretation. Um, but this is then fed into what we call a knowledge graph, which starts to match offices of government to people, to places, to events. So we're trying to create uh, effectively what is a meta archive, an archive that would go way beyond what was originally in the forecourts in Dublin uh, when it was destroyed and make it searchable and as really as useful as we can for people. So I'm going to leave it there. That's I probably said enough and we're running over time. So um, I hope that has been useful and an interesting overview of what we're doing. Thank you very much um, to both Tim and Neil. Um, some absolutely fascinating um, presentations. And I think we've learned an awful lot about the sort of projects and some of the things that are going on. Um, and really, I think just every time I hear about this project, I understand more about how the processes work, but also just the sheer scope and the sheer possibilities. I think this we could really keep this going for a very, very long time and we'd still be trying to find new material, new replacements and new ideas. Um, there's also, I think, great to hear the sort of, I suppose, the importance of those early trailblazers, the Herbert Woods and the DA charts. And I think their, their role, I think, is hugely significant and must be recognised. Just to open up the floor to questions, there are some questions coming in on the Q&A, and I'm going to start off with um, a really, I suppose, broad question, but I think one that's really, really interesting, um, about sort of the historiography of this, and points to something that Tim raised before the questions as well, um, when we were speaking earlier about the issues of recreating a state archive and the problems that that might raise, and I think that's something that should always be borne in mind. We have a question here from Seamus Moriarty, who asks, while the destruction was a dreadful catastrophe, I think we'd all agree, do you believe that accepted interpretation of Irish history might not actually be appreciably different had the archive survived? Um, I have thoughts myself, but I'm gonna hand over to the panel. Oh, I'm sorry, I, 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 I suspect you and I probably have similar thoughts on this. I, mean, I, I would say it's hard to agree with that proposition. I mean, yes. It's not simply the availability of sources that drive scholarship. That's not true. There are outside sources, historiographical trends, ideological influences, uh, interpretations are derived from numerous sources. Um, there's a, an argument that I can sort of see being made here, and it's I'm, there's some 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 substance to it. That essentially, what most historians have done, you know, the, the you know the meat and potatoes work of Irish historians for the early modern period. Is essentially to compensate for this and like like we've been saying today some of the sort of substitutes we're talking about are very well known and there are very good substitutes um we've referenced today the state papers uh whether the sp60s or sp63s or the home office papers from the 1780s on these substantial sort of uh, uh, para replacement or substitute collections that being said it's very hard to agree with that proposition simply because let's take examples of people of historiography from pre-1922 Think of how the 18th century was written by Lecky and Froude. Um, those books on the 18th, on 18th century, uh, particularly social life in Ireland, particularly for the earlier part of the 18th century, are a lot more vivid than most of what was written in the 20th century until much later on, I would argue, until sort of the, the final decades of the 20th century. The historiography really didn't catch up, simply because Lecky and Froude had access to some really important sources. Uh, 
one source that was contained. Uh, it was letters to Dublin Castle from petty officials and minor gentry called the miscellaneous civil correspondence. Uh, he and Froude both use it extensively to get those sort of tensions bubbling below the surface of rural society in the early decades of the 18th century. Now you can still get to that tension. There's substitutes for that, but it's a little bit harder to do. You have to go looking in a lot more places to get just sort of a sense of what that paper flow was coming into the castle and into the authorities about potentials for discontent. Uh, now you, you have it much better for later periods. If you ever work on say the state of the country papers or the rebellion papers, or if you're a 19th centrist and you worked on those, I mentioned them before, chief secretary's office registered papers, the seesaw, you know, that really gives you some sense of sort of uh, not just the state, but discontents. That's much harder to get for the earlier period because of the destruction of documents. And that definitely did perhaps give uh, an impetus, I would argue, um, to seeing the 18th century as sort of, oh, those earlier decades were all peaceful and consensual, and it was only in the 1790s that it all went wrong. That's very sort of much sort of the, the, the new history school of sort of McDowell and, and, and Moody and people like that, sort of, you know, uh, pre-1780, 1790, uh, it, it's all sweetness and light, and it's just the French Revolution that sends it all into a tizzy. Where that's much harder to sustain if you actually go looking for, the, for that evidence. So that's one example. I'm sorry to harp on about it. But well, no, I, I don't think that writing of Irish history would necessarily have been the same. Neil, do you want to comment on that at all? Uh, yeah, I think it would have been quite different. I think it, um, <laughs> I think it also depends on what questions you're asking. Um, there's lots of types of history that uh, weren't thought of uh, pre-destruction or around destruction that have come into play. Um, gendered history, uh, social history, all these things that uh, are now like cataloging has been uh, detrimental to this or the, the type of cataloging that was done. Um, if you think about women's history and like, there are records at TNA, um, uh, equity records again, that give us amazing insights into um, people's lives, uh, non-state matters as such into people's lives, into land ownership disputes, into family disputes, into probate issues that um, were like, are unavailable to historians of Ireland now. And we try to fill it in. That's what I'm trying to do when I'm looking in the equity courts in a, at TNA, uh, in, in Exchequer, in Chancery, um, to extract Irish matters where people were taking cases to London rather than keeping them in Dublin, to allow us, to give us insights into um, a very different aspect of uh, of life then survived out, and again outside of the state papers yeah no, i think just i suppose the only thing i think i would just throw in there is that i think one of the key things here is and you know it's economic and social history that if one yeah. looks at the economic and social history of other jurisdictions what can be done from state archives versus what can be done in ireland and one thinks of some of, the, things of, some of the chapters in the recent Cambridge history, which have been really good at pointing out the absences and the comparative differences. So some of the things that Mary O'Dowd has been talking about in terms of gender history for years, some of Claude Tate's work of early modern social history and the sources. I know that she's one of the people who's always decrying the absence and will never forgive those in 1922. And I think she's probably right. And there's a whole rake of other sorts of topics that we just cannot get at. So yeah, maybe the meta-narratives of the sort of political history of Ireland might be um, not changed massively, though I think Tim's point in the 18th century is really, really important. 
and then that can probably be extended back to the quieter periods of the 17th century, and there are a few. Um, I think and beyond. So I think there is there is there is more that we can be done. So absolutely, it's, but it is an important question to bear in mind, and just what was lost and how it fits into our narratives. Um, another question, I suppose, just on a sort of more project ambition question, that's coming in here. What sort of percentage of records do you hope to be able to reproduce? And I know this is impossible to sort of give a proper answer, an accurate answer, but at least what's, what do we think at this stage? Depends what series you're talking about. That's the, when you begin to think about it, it depends whether you're looking at something like Chancery or Exchequer or these destroyed commissions or some of it are just irreplaceable. That it's as simple as that. Um, we think we can put more than 5% of the total back together um, which is still a massive amount. Uh, if you're looking at parts of series, where there might be, like, if you think of uh, there's papers in the British Library from the 17th century uh, from Chancery Equity side, um, there's, there's, there's material in the Bodleian that we're currently working with the Bodleian. There's snippets, there's 19th century material in G.B. Analogist papers, saying somewhere like the College of Arms again here in London. Uh, Beatums, William Beatums, uh, transcriptions are there. Uh, his own working papers, the uh, genealogists in the 19th and early 20th century, we've, we're trying to do our very best to track things down. Um, but uh, Peter, uh, Peter Crooks talks about having more than 50 million words already put back together. Um, when you put uh, the 19th century uh, record commissioner transcriptions, um, which are uh, mainly focused on the exchequer, side a massive massive piece of work uh, putting that back together making it searchable um it's it's really really hard to tell and i don't know yet we won't know until at the end of this phase and the important thing to say is that this is just a phase um we are well, hopefully up to about 10 percent of the total that was there what do you think tim is that about right i mean it's a really valid question so i don't want to dismiss it as sort of you know how long is a piece of string but it's yeah, I mean, the line I've always heard is uh, how much we put back together, not as much as we'd like, but probably more than we can actually handle or process. Um, I mean, one of the problems really is we're going to have to make some very tough calls about digitization and transcription, about what we're actually going to go after, because there's a lot more of it out there than we thought. Like Neil said, it's not going to be 100%, and it's not going to be evenly distributed. Uh, there's going to be some things we can put back together, yeah, pretty pretty high standards, some stuff irreplaceable. But we definitely have our hands full. And I think people will be actually shocked by how much there is out there. And, and sort of not, I'm not trying to diminish expectations or anything here, but actually how useful even just a, a good cataloging, a good yeah. survey of what exists and where it relates to what was destroyed, how useful that is in itself before you even get into talking about actually platforming digital versions of it. But that, of course, it, we do have a, a substantial digitalization aspect of the project as well. Sorry, that's too. We have what we call an inventory of loss. So we're trying to track everything that's been lost. Um, and we're, we've used, we've turned, we've turned Woods Guide into a modern database, an electronic database. And from that then, we can start to what's called stitch material back into it. And that's our inventory of survival. So as we're identifying pieces, uh, volumes, a series even, we can start to plonk them back in at a, at a data level. And we then have to start thinking about whether or not we want to pursue these for uh, say digitization and just have images or um, 
digitization and transcription and processing to extract all the entities. So at each point, there's, we have to kind of triage and we, we scope and we, we, we sit together and try to work out how to proceed as a, as a full team and within budget and resource. And uh, we're also trying to make sure that all of these amazing uh, repositories and archives around the world that are helping us, it's beneficial to them too. So, uh, and to get a good spread of materials, so medieval, uh, early modern, say the pre-modern and then the modern materials and the team's makeup reflects that. So that's our process of trying to recreate if that's if that answers your question at all. Okay, thank you very much. I think that's really helpful. Um, and I suppose linked to that, um, a question here from Claude Tate, who does point out that she is still cursing the authors, the destructions of the record. Um, thanks to, to the speakers, she says, and it's really quite thrilling to hear of the new developments of the project. And she's wondering whether the team envisages just any point in the future where there might be funding available so that outside projects might be able to feed into and link with Beyond 2022. I know personally from my own experience, I think that is beginning to become possible with a project I'm working on, on the Registry of Deeds. But I wonder if you guys could speak to a bit more to that. Yeah, I think there's a real possibility for that. Um, the, the idea of what we're doing is, is not to suck up all the resource and knowledge that's available, but to facilitate um, and work with other scholars. We can't do it all ourselves. One of the things we've been grappling with from the start is how do we draw on everybody else's knowledge and create some sort of opportunity and ability for people to get in touch and say, I found this, do you know about this? And um, Dave Brown is, uh, is remarkable at this, at uh, connecting with projects and repositories around the world, particularly in the US at the moment, and identifying materials. And uh, there will definitely be um, opportunities, Claude. I don't know how to, I don't know how we're going to manage it even yet, but um, there is a, a corpus of knowledge well beyond our resources and abilities at the moment to capture that we need to try and draw into the project. And we're really only in discovery phase at the moment and in this phase until 2022. And uh, we will be hoping to prove, move beyond proof of concept, but prove to funders uh, the opportunity this project provides to put more money into it, to start to um, link uh, other people's research. and. Like the, the goal really is to bring it into, bring as much data as we can into our database and into the, what's called the knowledge graph. So you can start linking, say, offices of state or people or counties or townlands. And if you search for a townland, an example we have at the moment is Kinsale and all the records that we currently have in our database, which is not so many, um, everything that's available. So you, you saw it briefly demonstrated there on the video at the start, if you, if you, if you caught up with that, and it's, you know, um, yeomanry records, I think it was Carlo, and that brings you to a townland, and then the people from that townland and church records and census records, and, you know, it's huge. So it's really huge. Yeah, just a couple, couple more questions here. One um, asking about, um, could you go into some of the material that survived partially from the fire and the PRO that are now being examined and the so-called burnt documents or scorched documents? And I think also just, is the project partnering then, you mentioned partners there with, with organizations such as the Royal Society, is there a goal to include the size records eventually or to, re, to, or to partner with local archives? I can answer some of this. Um, one about the solved records, the, the scorched records, I'm very hesitant to say anything simply because I think Zoe Reed is on this is attending today, who is the 
head conservation archivist from uh, NAI, that's head of conservation, who is doing a remarkable job dealing with the South papers, um, with the South, South documents. Uh, there is material there. Most of it has not ever really been, it's not, not been used. There's only recently been a sort of a, a comprehensive survey of what actually survived, which Zoe is, is sort of the driving force behind. We are looking at it. Um, I wouldn't feel comfortable yet saying anything more about that because it's still early phases, but 100% we are, that is a core part of what Beyond 2022 is. Uh, jumping ahead to the final part of that question, which says about size records, about local grand juries, local authorities. Yes, we are talking to the Association of, uh, of Local County Archivists and, and Museums. I can tell you just from my own position here in the North, uh, Prony happens to hold a lot of local documents. It is in many ways, Prony sort of doubles as a state archive and local record office. Um, I'm also, I, I have been reaching out to local public uh, archives, libraries, county museums, um, church libraries and archives. We are very much looking at local archives and reaching out to them. This is some, I just come back to that issue of sort of, are we just imbibing central state archives and central state perspective? The answer is no, we're not. We do value local assize and grand jury records and we are making an active uh, a job to reach out to them. Now upon the second part, the middle part of that question, which was about partnering with organizations, uh, Neil, you might probably know a bit more about, about the partners. Yeah, we have, I don't know how many um, participating institutions, we call them. There's, there's five key or core partners. There's Prony, National Archives Ireland, Trinity Library, um, the Irish Manuscripts Commission, and TNA. And that's kind of the core. And they're called cores because the directors of those organizations sit on they're part of the internal structure of the project. Outside of that then, um, I can speak to the to British side, which is what I'm trying to uh, wrangle at the moment. We've got the British Library, we've got the College of Arms, we've got the Bodleian, uh, we've got, we are in the process of putting together meetings with County Archivists all around England for Irish collections. Um, uh, Scotland is beyond our, our ability at the moment, but through other parts of my job, I, I work closely with National Records Scotland, so we know stuff is there. I know an awful lot of material is there and Patrick you'll, you'll be well aware of that um, so the answer is yes we are we're doing our very very best to uh, identify records and the, the thing about a, a project like this is everybody has everybody has their own research background whereby we know like I would have known from my own research that I needed to go to Kent and that I needed to go to Manchester and I needed to be in Sheffield. And I went to those places as a, as a PhD student and subsequently, and I read the materials there. But that's only because it was my own research. We need to try and then bring uh, that knowledge in. And that, that comes through working with the, the county archives and the repositories in, in Britain and trying to do the same thing for Ireland um, and organizations like the King's Inns um, libraries, uh, uh, Dublin city libraries, the, the um, we, we try to make uh, uh, um, matches. So between say the, the Oireachtas in Dublin and the House of the Parliament in London and National Library of Ireland and British Library and bodies like this um, that uh, have cognate collections of material, either direct replacement or related that fits into a meta, meta archive. Excellent, I think just, um... Just one very specific question, which I might just leave for leave for Neil to follow up afterwards. Um, which is just and just um, 
So there's a further comment here from Zoe Reed from the National Archives, who is indeed here. Um, and she just wants to stress that there's some info on the conservation work to date can be found on the archive fever section with Beyond 2022 um, website. And I think that is highly recommended. There's some really, some really good stuff there and sort of blogs on ongoing aspects of the project. And I think some, some of which have been touched on earlier today. Um, I think it's really, really useful. Um, so I think that's probably where we can leave it here today. But I think it is just, I think just worth highlighting just how transformative this project is for study of early modern, pre-modern Ireland, whatever we want to call it, um, and the bits either side of that, which are much less important. So I think I, would, I think just to thank Tim and Neil for what, all they've done today. And I think if you can all virtually clap them from where, wherever you are. And just to announce that next week, we don't have a seminar. It is reading week here in Trinity, of which we're all very grateful. And, and the following week, we'll be back with a paper on Chartism, um, and I'll be circulating the details and the memory of Chartism. Um, I've temporarily forgotten the title, so I don't want to announce that beyond that. And then we we then have Scott Sowerby and Jason McGilligan coming up later in November, as well as Susan Flavin and the Food Cult Project at the end of the month. Um, so that's just to give a flavour of what's coming. And just to remind you that podcasts of previous talks and the future podcast of this talk will be available on the Long Room Hub page. Um, so thank you all very much for coming. And thank you for your attention to our two speakers. Thank you very much. <laughs>It's no problem to answer Stephen's question. I can. Yeah, no, if he's if he's, if he's, he's, he's gone. He's gone. Uh, I know. Um, I don't have an email for him, but if he wants to give me send me an email, I'll, I'm, I'm, I might have his email. I can pass it on. Okay. I, I even I had <laughs> it's in the question. I was digging around on my. Let me show you this if I can share again. Um, these are these are absolutely amazing. Might let's share. Should be able to. What he's talking about is this. So these are the Philadelphia company. Oh, yeah. Um, went, uh, sent people over to TNA and to Dublin to create these, uh, the, the James the first uh, state letters, as they call them, and they're absolutely beautiful. And we there's, there's some in a TNA and there's some in Harvard, and we're going to pair them and put them back together. They're absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Wonderful looking. So, yeah, yeah, they're gorgeous. They're gorgeous. So, and they're perfect. They're because they're written in a, a distinct nineteenth-century hand. They can go into transcribus. And yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's all. It's all in the, the pipeline, as we call it. Ah, Stephen, there he is. Cool. Thank you, Quiva. I will get on to him. St. Carroll, but only one L. Yeah, it's amazing how much of the stuff that like was transcribed by hand in the 19th, early 20th century. I mean, they must have thought by the 1950s or 1960s that this was effort wasted because you had microfilm now. Mm. But weirdly enough, it's actually much easier for transcribers to deal with the handwritten transcriptions because they're in one hand. 
Yeah, where yeah. if we were to digitize microfilm or do even the images, even if we were to take new images of this stuff, like something like the HO or SP60 papers, it's a new handwriting style every item because it's multiple correspond multiple, multiple correspondence. Whereas if someone like Charter's underlings have just put all these pieces of correspondence to one single nice, easy to read around hand, our machines can read it really easily. So it's mm. I gave the example there, the Pelham papers, they're a doddle, like great. Yeah, yeah. No, I think discovering this with some of the stuff I'm working on at the moment, but some of the Scottish stuff is impossible. Yeah. And some of the Irish stuff was, is, you know, it's their, mem their memorial volumes, so they are, they're freshly transcripts. Yeah. Um, they're, they're reasonably, they seem to be reasonably easy when we've tested it, but um, the Scottish stuff is a nightmare. Right. <laughs> 17th century Highland documents that one doesn't want to think about the challenges. Um, but we get there. Um, Listen, that was really excellent. Thank you so much for I Thank you. illuminating so much to the project. And I think it's just, it really is every time I think I pick up something new and I understand the processes so much better. But I, We're I, trying to write um, a bureaucratic history, a guide to how you go about understanding the processes of government because we didn't get into it, but like it has a bad name. Yeah. And it had a bad name and McDowell kind of spoiled it for everyone. But... Um, we like there like we will be like have enhanced research guides or whatever you call them explaining how the process works and how you could go about finding records. I think the sort of the chart that you had there of the English government is like um the called the called the columned one is as yeah. clear an illustration as I've ever seen. Um, that was really that was really helpful for my angle. I was just I was blown away by that. Uh, that would be, I took a picture of that chart because I said, wow, that's a very clear, uh, just a, a good kind of uh, pictorial. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's something I've been trying to work on, like trying to, I'm trying to write a history of the governance of Ireland in the 17th century. So even just understanding that, how the country operated or the, the, the bureaucracy operated and people fitted into it. So, um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it is, but makes a huge difference. Just so, and it was then it all changes post sixteen ninety, and we yeah, lose no. track of it all again. You know? that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's going, yeah, it's like that. Well, it's, and there's many more trees on the, the branches. Yeah, it's like, oh, where did that go? What did that part of government go into? And yeah. big government turns up um, of sorts. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Well, listen, um. Thank you both again. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.